and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by Frosty Tap. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. I hope everyone enjoyed the bank holiday weekend. Some of you were probably had to work on Monday. I worked on Monday. Our magazine goes to press on, on Mondays every week. So we always have a small team working on bank holidays. But actually, it was really great. I got so much done. I forgot how much you can achieve in a day when hardly anybody else is at their desk and no one calls or emails you. So I'm not complaining about my bank holiday at my desk, particularly because the weather was not that great. We have a special treat for you all on today's podcast. Our guest interview is with the leading British event rider, Piggy March. He'll be telling us all about her 2019 badminton win and why it meant so much. You know, badminton just feels like that is the event you really, really want to one day try and win. And I think definitely one of the best moments of my life and one that I'll never forget, that's for sure. I'll also catch up with our news team about a new EU health law a show bringing in rules around who can warm up ponies and a crisis facing the Riding for the Disabled Association. We'll also be learning all about MRI scans with vets Andy Fisk-Jackson and Rick Farr. There are a lot of structures that you're not going to see on X-ray and you're not going to see on ultrasound. So considering and discussing referral for an MRI is the logical next step. So it's time to get going. Velcro up your horse's boots and let's get started. I'm delighted to introduce our guest this week, the event rider Piggy March. Piggy is the reigning badminton title holder and the winner of four championship medals in eventing, including team gold at the 2018 World Equestrian Games. Hello, Piggy. Welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. No, it's great to have you on. And we are going to be putting this interview out in the week when we should all have been at badminton this year. And we're also sad that we can't be there because, of course, the event is cancelled due to COVID-19, as it was last year. So in the absence of being at badminton, we thought we would take a look back at your brilliant win at the event two years ago. So... Let's start by talking about your journey with Veneer Kamira. She belongs to Trevor Dickens, and I know she's known as Tilly at home. And she did actually start her eventing career with you back in 2012. Can you tell us a little about how you first came to ride her sort of nearly 10 years ago now? Well, I just had a phone call from Trevor asking if I could take her in um, and just start as as we do normally with with event horses. And And so I think I did... I think she might have been a six-year-old um, when she came to me and she hadn't evented yet. And um, she, was, she was a real weak, very brave little horse. And I just did a few events with her, really, and all was fine. And then at the end of 2012, 2013, I was moving yards and there was sort of a six-month gap from the yard I was at to being in the new yard of where I lost half the stables because the, the landlords were knocking barns down and rebuilding other things. So I downscaled basically. And um, she was one to go on to um, Izzy Taylor, who then took her on through the ranks of, for, I think she had her for a couple of seasons and you know got her from novice to advanced in 18 months or something and was, and was flying. She then was with Paul Tapner, who did a couple of four stars. And when he retired, 
Trevor rang me again to say, would I be interested in taking her back? Paul said she's definitely a five-star horse and she doesn't feel much until she gets to the big events um, because, you know, going around open intermediates and things and I, I admit it every time and that she's quite hard work to manage, but she's, she feels quite normal just doing the, the smaller events and preparation events and just, you know, really excels at getting to a big stage and, you know, the great big gallopy, beefy courses of Babington and Burley, she, she comes into her own and feels a completely different horse. So um, it's a very interesting journey and we're always learning with horses, but that one is for sure um, surprised me in many ways. And, you know, I'm very proud of her and, you know, I'm her number one fan because she's she's been a fabulous little horse. And yeah, it was in 2017 that she came back to you after spending a bit of time with Izzy and, and and with Paul, as you say. What was it like to sort of renew that partnership? Because I don't think it's something that happens very often to riders. You know, horses come and horses go. But I think to, to have a horse that's away for four or five years and then come back. Did you have in the back of your mind what she was like as a young horse? Or did you approach her sort of really fresh? Um, a little bit of both, really. I mean, it's got to be you know a lot happens it's a lot of other people's hard work in four and five years from a from a real baby I mean I know a six-year-old isn't a baby in many ways but a very weak blood horse it is and I didn't have her for very long I think I I think I had her for about six months or something I only did three or four events in it so it wasn't like it was a a real partnership that I'd had since a four-year-old till six-year-old and and that sort of thing. And I had lots of horses in the yard at the time. And so I couldn't really remember her that well, apart from being very weak and quite hard to get on the bit for longer than five minutes, um, <laughs> of which sometimes I still probably have the same thing. But um, no, and so she came back, uh, you know, it was it was definitely a very fresh start. And it was, you know, it's not every day you get offered a horse that's already, you know, gone round badminton. So, you know, they can do it. So, you know, the the level of respect there is already already there in, you know, a lot of it because they're clearly proven that they are, you know, a good horse to have got to that level. And and so you do take it very seriously. And so I did go into it, into it quite differently. And many things, are, you know, she is the same horse, but in a lot of ways she had she had changed a lot and you know I was the lucky one of a lot of other people's hard work in producing her and getting her to an advanced horse and and managing managing her and giving her the mileage has you know benefited me in the end. Mm. And so you got her back in 2017 and you hadn't actually competed in 2016 you had the year out while you were having your son Max and in that first year back together, you were sixth at Bramham, and then you rounded off the year with second at Burley, which was just a, a, a brilliant result. Did that feel like a big achievement to, to do that sort of after having had a year out at that stage? Yes, I suppose so. I think I think that year for me in many ways was a was a make or break year. Having had the time off, I'd had you know a bit of a bad run before I took my time off with Max, and and you can kind of you know, fall out of love with what you're doing in some ways. And so I'd cut down on horses. I'd changed my, you know, plan and structure of the yard to not be trying to event 25, 30 horses. And, 
you know, not doing a good enough job. And so I'd scaled down quite a bit. And I gave this little horse in particular a lot of attention um, because I had so many, so much fewer horses, which I now try to stick to. And so it was, you know, my biggest thing was just try to enjoy what I did for the people enjoy riding the horse and feel like I was always getting getting somewhere with with the horses that I had and every day I rode her and I felt that there was you know more to come and it could get better and and I was excited to get on and and what we could get and I think Bramham was a you know, like I said, the one day event, she, she's really hot and she's quite a tricky little mare. Um, and she, you know, when she's hot, she gets quite divey at her jumps and snatchy and not not so settled. And um, she really doesn't give much feel. And so to start with, it didn't feel like match made in heaven at all. But I did think with her training at home, she was, um, we were getting a bit of a partnership and I think Bramham was a massive turning point of of getting out of the start box and how good she did feel around a real proper track, a gallopy track with big jumps. And she had never given me that feel before. And and I remember riding like a moron at the water jump, I think, at Bramham. And, you know, doing she did the impossible to do what she needed to do to get over the fence and clamber through it. And I I just thought, you know, this is a very, very good, good horse. When she needs to be very good, she's very good. And it's only when it became serious that she showed that, that class. And, you know, after that, I was actually then very excited to go to Burley and, and have a go. And, you know, she was, she was second that year and made it feel easy. And, and, you know, it was, it was very exciting. And, um, you know, especially having had the, the time off, the time out and, you know, I was just very proud of her. You know, it's it's the horses that, you know, we dream the dream and the horses can either take us places or they don't. And she was definitely, you know, a little horse that could sense my dreams and took me there, if, you know, that makes makes sense. And, you know, I was really proud. It was a, a great feeling and I was very excited then to crack on afterwards. Mm, and you've touched a couple of times on the fact that she's not the most typical horse to ride or manage and she's quite a different horse at home and at the small events and at the big events. How does that sort of manifest itself day to day in, in the ways that you have to, to manage her, to produce her at her best for the big events? What do you have to do that's, that's special and different for her? I think it's just the days that involve around her. You know, even at the minute she's 16 years old and I have to change my plan a lot for her or the weather or whether she's eating, whether she's not, whether she feels okay. You know, there's just such a fine line with her. She she isn't a, a natural to come out. You know, she's not a real loose, nice mover. You know, she's very merry. She can be quite crabby and ulcery. And, you know, it's there is a very fine line of just getting her to feel very comfortable her feet good. She's got, you know, real flat little feet. Her soles are so close to the floor. Um, everything, whether it's eating, you know, she used to be so light and, you know, it's taken quite a while to build her up and keep that way. But the moment she's at all excited or nervous, you know, in an excited way or something, she has hot, cold sweats, like, you know, a click of a switch, she can 
she can tie up she then when she sweats she loses a lot of weight quickly you know it's just a constant um you know sort of attention to detail of you know the weather changing slightly anything um is we have to be very aware of and um you know to just try and get the very best from her and her feeling in good shape and and Yes, but I think that gives a fair example of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a imagining a, issues. Yeah, I'm just imagining a whole team of people uh, running around after Tilly, you know, watching her every move, the weather, what she's eating. It's amazing to hear that attention to detail from you and your team to to bring her to her best. But to sort of go back to the the sort of story that you've that you've been through with her. The first year you went to badminton. After that, second of Burley, things didn't go your way, and you had a fall. I think in the water. Is that right? What yeah. happened? Yeah, um, that was gutting, really. I think it was it was just a really silly thing. I mean, she didn't really do much wrong. It was just the type of fence. It was actually quite a small fence and just built on the bit of a, a lip. You know, the, the the ground ran away. It was quite a steep slope just before it. And, and it wasn't a big fence and into water. I mean, she's always gone into water, but she's always you know, that would be the one thing that she would have a look at. And I just think her her natural way, you know, she's quite downhill and she always just sort of does enough when she has to do her jumping. And it was a fence I didn't love walking it, but, it, you know, it was fine. It jumped perfectly fine all day. Um, but it was... Um, and she just clipped the top of it, I think, just going slightly, you know skimming like like she can do and it just caught a toe on the way down and it and it really brought her down she didn't particularly do a lot wrong and I think if I was to ride it again another hundred times you know she would have she would have got away with it and jumped it fine it was just you know that little you know fine line again that inch difference and it it brought her down quite savagely you know she went properly under the water and things so and that was really gutting because she'd got a 25 dressage that year and she was flying you know she was up on the clock and it was it was one of those those courses that suited you know it was classic moe's year and they'd probably be quite similar in in stamps and types and how they go and and not many got the time and things so i i was um you know absolutely gutted because she felt fab and it was just a you know very very small um small mistake that was really very costly so I was gutted about that. Yeah, it nearly happened one one year earlier for you, maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but did you have to sort of build back from that? You know, as you say, it was a sort of quite a savage fall for her and you. And did you have to sort of rebuild confidence afterwards, or was she still pretty bold? She was. She was okay. You know, I did. I did pay attention to it and went and jumped back through water, and she seemed totally fine. She'll go through any water. She's not. She's not ever said no. Um, until a couple of years ago and went at a little event and but she sort of her feet were just starting it was a very hard ground summer and and so she lets us know you know as much as she's um, you know so hardy and tough um, no I think to be honest she came back from that and she doesn't run very much or need to run very much for the big one she just loves the big occasion I think she finds the the smaller events quite unnecessary and she thinks that she doesn't really need to need to be at those sort of places which is even more frustrating at the minute without anywhere exciting to go to but um 
that is what it is at the minute and we have to just do what we can but no she came back she was at Burley that autumn and I think was fifth yeah very much back on track at Burley that autumn with with fifth place so the following spring you were building up to badminton again she had a couple of runs at Osby and, and Belton and you know we've already talked about the fact that you know she, uh, she she's not at her best at those one day events and I know that um, so although you know she had good prep runs presumably you weren't thinking oh gosh she's on fire going into badminton you know she was just doing her thing and you were building up yeah exactly I, n- I never feel um she's on fire um it takes quite a lot of producing and managing to get to that the really good stuff from her but it was um yeah that year I went to 2019 I did Kentucky the week before which I'd never done before which is quite a you know monster in itself with those two big weeks and the journey and getting a horse out there and leaving Tilly for a week but my sister is brilliant at being left with Tilly she knows her very well and you know I think she stresses a lot herself of trying to keep her in one piece for the the week before because she is a pain and yes I think we were slightly there were signs of a little bit of tying up when we were in Kentucky the weather suddenly changed and she rang panicking and um but she ended up being you know totally fine so it's it's never it is never smooth with her at all and I certainly didn't go into badminton going there with you know confidence I'm very confident to feel like I've got a five-star horse but every inch every little second every hour of every day is about just trying to be doing the right thing by her working her well enough not too hard not too less not too you know just that really fine tuning and and taking each step totally as it comes with her because there's there's you can't take anything for granted. I mean you can't in our sport or our game anyway. The the margins for success and not are so so slim and now with these point winning or losing by point ones or point twos or something is is getting so close. So it's it was just literally that week of just staying in our little bubble and just getting getting our bit done as well as we could. I think I had an early Thursday, I was number 32, I think. And so I had a Thursday lunchtime dressage. So it's all systems go till till then. And I was delighted with the dressage. I definitely didn't want to go and try and do it again. I thought, you know, it was a clear round and she was, she was great. She didn't make any mistakes. I'm sure there's probably lots of other horses that you, you sit up and watch their tests and they look you know, much more impressive or flashier or or whatever. But, you know, for me, she was great. She had presence. She really tried and she did a clear round. So I was like, I will take that all day and, you know, was very proud of her. And then you kind of enjoy the next day of watching everyone else. But I think she was in quite a good good place after. Yep, she was fourth. So Oliver Townend was first and second. Tom McKeown was third. And yeah. And she was fourth. And uh, yeah, it's funny you mentioned the fact that she has that sort of edge of going towards tying up. Because I remember that you and I were trying to sort out the Hero to Hero interview that you were going to do with Mary King, potentially at badminton. And the time changed and you said, oh, no, I've got to ride my horse again. You know, she's got to be perfectly managed to be ridden the right amount. And I remember speaking to you that week. But as you say, it was all coming together. She was fourth after dressage, went into cross country day in that position. Tell me about the ride she gave you. Oh, she was fab. She was fab and I think I've actually, I don't watch many of the rounds, my rounds that I do 
very much, but that is one that does it pops up on your phone occasionally. And I think with badminton not having run, you know, for the last two years, it, it keeps coming back. And oh, she was just amazing. She really, really was. She was just so um, on it. And I don't think we had, we didn't have a moment really. She was just, she was a pleasure. She was just hardy. She put a head down she always runs with her head down but she was just gritty and like come on mum um you know we've got this come on and I kept thinking to myself because I'm quite capable of always just getting a few time faults and I shouldn't really with her because she's always like come on you know you can feel her sort of being like you know she wants this as much as as anyone and if I do my job right and you know she's there totally with me and gritty and you know she's just a hardy little wonderful little girl and she's like come on and I think I was still two seconds over or something but I don't think we had a moment and every time I thought I was enjoying myself I think I can't enjoy myself keep going kick kick more or go faster and no she was fab and those couple of seconds over the time were good enough to move you up into second place. Oliver Townend was leading. So you went into the show jumping, lying second. Talk us through that that last day and, and sort of the, uh, the the emotions that you went through. Well, to be honest, you know, on Saturday night, I sort of thought, oh, I'm, you know, getting closer. Um, and maybe God knows, who knows. And, you know, but Sunday morning I walked the course and... I just thought, no way. I just thought it was as good a track as I've seen at badminton in the jumping. Um, the time was proving really fast. Um, a lot of people were getting time faults and and rails. And I just thought how the course laid out. It wasn't her sort of track. I've, I've said to you a few times, she can get very downhill. Um, and so related distances are you know, not the easiest for her. I think they can, she could sort of just get a bit flatter and a bit hurdly, where if you've got a twistier track, you can keep getting her back on a hocks a bit better. And and it was all just quite a very fast flowing forward distance sort of track. So I, I wasn't very confident about it and at all. And, and so I just thought, do you know what? Never mind. you know, what'll be will be. We can only just go and and do your best. And she warmed up. You know, she was she was pretty calm. She warmed up quite well. Um, she had a couple of rubs outside just before she went in, and and you know she was she was great. I think I was still in total shock. I think when I did jump the last last fence and sort of looked to the board and thought that can't have been clear. Was that clear? And I sort of looked to the, the board and then sort of looked at the time faults and I just saw, you know, it was a clean sheet, not, 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 not. And I was just like, oh my God. I was so overwhelmed of like, I, I didn't jump the last and sort of punch air and gallop off and was like, yes, I was just in so much shock and like disbelief. I don't, I don't know what it was. And then, then I sort of just lay down her neck and gave her a pat and was just like, I can't believe you just did that. You just did that, bless you, sort of thing. And then I looked up and then punched the air and everyone just really cheered and sort of felt like they were mad and so I just I punched the air again and I was just oh my god it was just the best feeling I have probably that feeling was probably more of a feeling than when someone said to you you'd won because just the the, the pride you have in your horse that that little horse for me and what she'd just done and how she was all week and 
you know, you just, you burst with pride, really. And I was just like, bless your little heart. She was unbelievable. And so that for me as a horse person or a trainer or an event rider or something is the best feeling in the world, to be honest. And and so I was I was really happy. I was second. I came out of the ring. I was um, greeted by Max, my little boy who hadn't been there for the week. Um, and I hadn't seen him all weekend. He stayed with his godparents just because it's just, you know, easier when you're at, at that level for me to just get there and, and focus. And he was only two and a half years old. So to have come out of the ring and have the horse be as amazing as she was and then be able to go and cuddle my little boy who I hadn't seen for ages, I was just overwhelmed with just happiness, I suppose. And, and was quite happy you know I was like second I'm, I've been second quite a few times at these things so I'm quite used to it and I'm quite happy about it um and I thought to be honest it was it was Oliver's week all week wasn't it he'd led the dressage on a you know 19 or or something and you know he was still quite a far ahead of me and all the rest of it so I just presumed he would he would just get the job done and so I was amazed when you know, they, they turned round and said, you'd won. <laughs> yeah, Oliver could afford one fence down and to be three seconds over the time in the show jumping. But he was 0.23 of a second too far over that time. Uh-huh. And that was, yeah, the moment when you'd won. And I will never forget it, Peggy, standing in that mix zone with the other journalists. And you'd worked with us in the mix zone the previous year yeah. when you weren't riding because <laughs> you were pregnant. And so you kind of knew what it was like for us standing there waiting for riders to come over to us. And I will never forget the moment when you came running in and threw your arms around my colleague, Catherine Austin. It was an incredible moment. Just that outpouring of, of emotion on that day and, and that that moment. What did it mean to you to have that win? Like, it must have felt like, you know, 25 years work encapsulated in one moment. Oh, God, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it, it would still make me emotional now, you know, just listening to you, you say it. I don't think I'd ever get bored of of it. And I think, I think it's badminton as well. I, I mean, I think we all, you know, growing up, you say, you know, if you could win anything, what would you love to win? And I think you just say badminton as an event rider, whether it's the history of it or or whatever. It's like, you know, badminton is just feels like that is the event you really, really want to one day try and win. And I think just the journey with the little horse, you know, what the little horse grows into and actually does on that big occasion, you know, not expecting it at all I I think it probably also hopefully gives a lot of hope to other other people as well that you know just keep keep going and you just never know and you know dreams can come true and you know it's just it, it was incredible but I can I very much often you know sit down or if I'm driving along and do think about it you know I could still well up just thinking of the emotions of that day in so many ways um, of just being, you know, definitely one of the best moments of my life and one that I'll never forget, that's for sure. Yeah, and I'm just sitting here grinning remembering it too, as, uh, you know, as you've been talking about it, it was an incredible week. Final question, Piggy. In the two years since then, you know, eventing has been tricky and the world has been tricky, but looking back on that win, has it changed your attitude to the sport or to life to have got that, that big one under your belt? Yes, um, definitely. I do think that it it settled me. I, I think if I'd have been second again, 
um, and missed the last, you know, couple of years with her, all the, you know, very good horses at that that level. I think it's it it was settling to think that you managed one. Um, you have managed to win a five star because it's everyone's everyone's dream to try and do, and that was the the biggest moment. So I think, yes, it did make me just take a breath. I don't think it's made me not want to not want to do it at all anymore. You know, it it was amazing, but I I am a bit more relaxed about it, which also can help as a sportsman. You know, it's not that desperate need or that over trying too hard or or something i'm naturally very competitive and i'll naturally always want to try and do the very best i can um and if it's good enough to win ever then that's amazing but you can only you know try your best and it's just great to think that your best one day was good enough for something like that Great. Oh, well, thank you so much, Piggy, for joining us today and walking us through that journey. It certainly put a smile on my face and hopefully it will for the listeners too. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks very much. So I'm joined today for our news review by three of my horse and hound colleagues. So first of all, it's hello to our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are things with you, Elle? Yeah, all good, thank you. I have an MOT on my lorry, which is always a bonus. It um, failed the first time on its brakes, and uh, which is obviously not good. And then the brakes were sorted out, so that's all good. And then I took my big mare to a show and had no brakes. So uh, better that no way around. <laughs> no brakes on the horse, brakes on the lorry now fixed. That, that's the right way around to have it, I think, if it has to be one or the other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I quite like to have brakes on my horse and my lorry, but you know, you can't have got to choose. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Well, it's good to know she's enjoying herself anyway. She had a lovely time. <laughs> <laughs> we also have with us our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. How are you, Lucy? I'm good, thank you, Pippa. I've been out reporting again this weekend. I was up at the Silver Spur, which was which was great fun. So that that was that was very exciting. Oh, that's one of those um, one of those hunt races, isn't it? Yeah. Where yeah, they sort of race over natural fences. Oh, it was it was fantastic. I felt really lucky to be there, of course, because it was all behind closed doors and things. But it's held right in Bicester with Wadden Chase Country, and they start off up quite quite a sharp hill with some sort of switchback hedges, and then they turn to their left and keep coming up that hill right in front of the commentary box up to what I call um, sort of almost like a picture frame hedge it's a spectacular view you get right across um, right across the hill and down into the valley and down to the canal and yes more hedges and natural brooks and things and uh, a lane crossing too and it was uh, lots of horses and riders really really enjoying themselves on Saturday which was wonderful to see. Mm, I'm quite fascinated by those hunt races. I know we had a report of one in Horse and Hand last week and obviously your mm. Silver Spur report will be in this Thursday as well. So if it's not something you know much about, I would definitely recommend reading those reports. It's really interesting. We also have with us our news writer, Becky Murray. How are things with you, Becky? Good. Well, I was going to report I've had a nice uneventful week. Um, I've just been cracking on with my girl, Chloe. But this morning I discovered a rebellion had taken place overnight um, I've been keeping a close eye on my Shetland's weight and they've been in a bare paddock, so soaked hay at the moment. Now, from my kitchen window, usually I would look out and see a dun and a bay horse grazing. But this morning I could see two very little ponies enjoying the grass. So the state of my field suggests everyone had a great time cantering around. 
the fencing is trashed <laughs> and I have two stuffed little ponies in their stable at the moment looking like they've eaten a small human <laughs> so um, they are very much in the bad books and I have a lot of fixing to do later today oh no so they're shut in thinking about what they've done is that what <laughs> <Exactly>. you said actually <laughs> oh no oh gosh poor you with the fence mending and everything as well well I had a little jump with Alfie on the weekend I've got a jumping lesson later this week but uh, last Saturday I thought I would practice trying to land on the correct leg because flying changes aren't really our strong points so if you can land on the right leg after a fence you're kind of off to a winning start for getting to the next fence and I had a fence across the middle of the school and when I was just jumping that fence I could do it every single time I could say I want to go right I want to go left I want to go right again and I could do whichever way I wanted every single time and it was just so interesting the minute I said I'm going to go on from that fence and jump around a course I went I, I couldn't land on the right leg again obviously I just can't <laughs> concentrate on more than one thing at once so that was interesting and a good exercise which I will definitely be practicing some more I thought you said at first you were just going to say I was practicing landing <laughs> so, well, that's a good thing to practice <laughs> yeah I mean I tend to find that if if you take off and it's the taking off that's sometimes more of a problem the landing naturally follows <laughs> right on to the serious news lucy we're coming to you first you've been working on a story about a new eu animal health law and those are the sort of words that sort of rarely bring good news they sort of strike fear and horror into my heart but actually it's not terrible this time is it i know it, it hopefully fingers crossed touching wood it doesn't seem to be so we knew this was coming it's been coming for a while Obviously, at the start of the year, we had a lot of big changes with Brexit. That was that was kind of the biggie with all in terms of new lorry requirements, new health certificate and vet requirements and new sort of customs requirements. And there was kind of a fear that the new animal health law, which came into act on 21st of April, might bring with it a host of even more red tape paperwork restrictions and the big worry was that it was going to have a real impact on isolation and residency periods so you know how long a horse is in a country before you can you can move him again which was a big worry but at the so far we seem to have there's been some negotiations and a lot of a lot of the um, requirements that were coming in with that law have either been postponed until August or they've gone completely. So at the moment, it's business as usual post-Brexit. That's where we are. And this is sort of particularly important for the thoroughbred breeding industry. Why is that? So, of course, this is coming in middle of April, uh, which is right in the middle of the thoroughbred breeding uh, season. And of course, the thoroughbreds, it's natural covering. So we do have horses moving across borders, particularly at this time. Um, and it was a bit of a worry into exactly what category those horses would fall uh, without going too much into the, the, the nitty gritty of the, the exact definitions in the legislation. There was a bit of concern around that. But the good news is, is that as I said, it's the negotiations have happened and it's at the moment it's business as usual post-Brexit. So that is able to continue without having any further great big obstacles thrown in their direction. And there's hopes that, you know, whatever the new health requirement papers are coming in in August, there's going to be time then for people to get their heads around what, exactly what those mean and what the implications are going to be well ahead of the 2022 breeding season. And the story has some links into digital passports for horses as well, doesn't it? Can you give us a bit more info on that? Yes. So essentially, the new EU animal health law, a bit like the Brexit bill, it's kind of an umbrella law, if you think of it like that. And so under that, the 
equestrian industry in Europe and the UK has to negotiate and find ways of complying with that law. Um, but there's lots of bits of it, strands of it that can be sort of thrashed out into into exactly what that means in real terms, if if that makes sense. So part of the legislation is the capacity to digitalize a lot of what currently has to be done by paper. So as part of that, there is quite a big push for having digital passports. Um, Weatherbees have uh, told me that all thoroughbreds born in Britain and Ireland this year are going to be issued with a Weatherbees e-passport alongside their traditional passports. So the hope is that eventually in the future, everything's going to be digital. At the moment, they are having their paper passport, which is still required under law, but they're having a digital one as well. So this kind of moves in that direction. I think we first reported on this starting to happen back in the autumn time last year, but yeah, further steps are are heading that way. So there is, I'm, I'm one of these optimistic people, but I really hope that this new, you know, this new legislation, I'm hoping we're going to get to a place where we can see horses moving across borders sort of a bit easier, uh, especially as we're heading now into a time, you know, hopefully again, post-COVID, post-DHB, cancellations and lockdowns when a lot more competition rides and competition horses are going to be wanting to move um, backwards and forwards across the Irish Sea and and the English Channel as well. Mm, I love the idea of passports going digital so you can't forget your horse's passport as such (laughs) because it would be on your phone or whatever that you have in the lorry. Thank you Lucy for that. Eleanor coming to you next. The Great Yorkshire Show has become a bit of a leader in the area of rider weight in the past few years. And that show is hitting headlines again this year with a new rule. Can you run us through this, please? Yeah, this is about the age um, of riders. And it's it's saying at this year's event, which is in July, horses and ponies can only be ridden by the riders who are entered to compete with them in whichever class that is. Or if there is another rider on the horse or pony warming it up or anything like that, it has to be someone who is eligible in age to compete in the same class. Okay, and this is on top of the sort of percentage rule which the show has previously applied. Can you just remind us of the detail of that rule? Yeah, so this is what they they brought in in 2016 and it was um, anyone riding a horse or pony anywhere on the showground has to be, or the person and the tack has to be less than 20% of the horse's weight and they have enforced that. So if the vet or, or whoever thinks that someone warming up a pony is too big for that pony, he will ask them to, to get off and be weighed. And if they are over the 20%, they're, they're not allowed to get back on. So it's all, it's, you know, it's been brought in for welfare purposes to make sure that people who aren't too big for ponies are not riding them. Mm. And why did the show think that the new rule is necessary on top of the 20% rule and what sort of reaction have they had since announcing it? Well, some people, um, since the uh, the rule was brought in, which actually should have been brought in last year, but of course last year's show didn't happen uh, because of COVID, but they there, there have been some riders who try to get round the 20% rule or, or get away with it. Um, and the Great Yorkshire Show has had emails and, and messages saying, you know, thank you for doing this. Thank you for taking this action because it's, it's so, you know, someone should be doing something about it. But nothing's ever sort of universally approved in the area of rider or horse weight, actually, is it? And I imagine there's been some pushback from competitors too? Yeah, we, we spoke to one competitor, her producer, who's who's not going to go. And he's saying that there, there, have, there will be some issues as, for example, they've got a girl at their yard who's got a 13-2 and a 12-2. And at the Great Yorkshire, those classes run in 
descending order. So if she's in the ring with her 13-2, she can't then be warming up her 12-2 at the same time. So they'd have to get someone else to ride uh, the 12-2 pony. And of course, if there isn't someone available, that means taking another child to the show, which in COVID times, you know, they're saying that's another household. And, you know, he's saying, well, my horse doesn't care how old I am. He may care how heavy I am, but he doesn't care how old I am. Okay. Interesting one. Thank you, Eleanor. Becky, you have been working on a story this week about the Riding for the Disabled Association, the RDA, as as we call it, and a problem that a lot of groups are facing. What is this all about? Well, RDA groups are having a huge struggle sourcing suitable horses at the moment. And this is a nationwide problem and it's causing really big waiting lists and they're having to run reduced sessions and I've been speaking to some of the RDA groups about this and they're calling it a real crisis. It has been something that's been going on for a number of years but Covid has made this an even bigger issue. And I think groups have been telling you that there's sort of a problem with perception that people have a certain idea of what an RDA horse should be like and of what they think its life will be like. Tell us a little more about that. Well one of the key points the groups raised is when they're being offered horses it tends to be older horses that are you know retired or can't be ridden anymore or they have various health issues and that's not what the RDA is looking for the RDA covers lots of disciplines you know show jumping vaulting they want healthy athletic horses that can do these jobs and they will take horses from the age of five as well now one of the other important points raised by one of the groups I spoke to is that they've found when someone is perhaps selling a horse sometimes sellers are reluctant for their horse to become an RDA horse. This seems to be based on a misconception that the horse is going to be pulled around or someone's going to be bouncing on them and the RDA really want to make clear that RDA riders are taught to ride just as well as able-bodied and they've got some really great talented riders that you know taking part in their lessons who want to enjoy the sport and improve and it's really quite sad to hear about this type of misconception when these groups provide such a brilliant service for riders. Mm, and, and what other challenges do the RDA face in buying horses? Well, we've seen an increase in horse prices and especially since COVID and it does seem to be such a fast moving market where horses are being snapped up really quite quickly. And when an RDA group's buying a horse, they will view it and they'll have it vetted and they need to make sure that horse is suitable. And quite simply, they can't act as quickly as a private buyer perhaps can. I spoke to RDA Chief Executive Ed Brasher about this and he really wants to get the message across that basically consider RDA as an option when selling your horse and to try and give groups that chance to get in there. Groups aren't going to deliberately hang about or, you know, sort of act slowly on purpose. You know, they will move as quickly as they can and horses will really be receiving such a great home for the RDA. Thank you, Becky. That's a really interesting one. And thank you to Lucy and Eleanor for joining us today too. The Horse and Hound podcast is currently supported by Frosty Tap from Roco ES Limited, leaders in frost-free technology. Introducing the C1000 Yard Hydrant, fresh mains water all year round, no matter what the temperature outside. So now it's time for some expert vet insight. Hello everyone, my name's uh, Andy Fisk-Jackson. I'm one of the surgeons at the Royal Veterinary College. Uh, I'm joined by uh, Rick Farr from Farm Percy. Hello, Rick. Hi, Andy. How are you? Oh, not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. 
So I thought we'd look today at MRI and um, it's an imaging modality which has been around for um, a decade or so now in, in, in being very available for over that time. Uh, it's increased in availability as well. It stands for magnetic resonance imaging and it's primarily used for imaging the lower limb. So mainly the foot. Most of the MRIs we do will be at the foot. And I'll come back for the reason for that in a second. Um, but this, the whole referral for an MRI will start um, from obviously uh, your vet. Um, and um, perhaps Rick, if you would just sort of give us a little insight of how that will just briefly come about referring a horse for an MRI. Yeah, sure. I mean, a lot of the time, obviously, it's due to um, biomechanical lameness. So we do know that the vast majority, particularly in the forelimbs, a lot of lameness tends to be in the feet. So as from a first opinion point of view, we'll come out, we'll do some nerve blocks. And then at that point, we normally have a discussion with you to say what we suspect the cause to be, but also how to spend our money most effectively. And I think the, the biggest thing is that by the time you fired off a load of x-rays, probably ultrasounded, actually, you're probably going to get a lot of the answers, but you're not going to get it in the clarity that you probably would require. So I think it's really important that, that clients understand that just to come out and start nerve blocking, there are a lot of structures in the foot, a lot of structures that you're not going to see on x-ray and you're not going to see on, on ultrasound. So from our point of view, then considering and discussing referral for an MRI is the logical next step. And sometimes we'll almost go, well, we won't bother with the x-ray and ultrasound. We'll, we'll refer straight for MRI because it's a better use of funds. We're likely to get more of an answer. Um, so mm -hmm. doing a, a generalized referral, not many of them are emergency referrals. So they're all kind of elective referrals. So we can do this with a little bit of time and ease. But your referral center then will obviously get in touch with us, get a history. We'll pass the history on. And then from Andy's point of view, they accept that referral. And, and whether they also deem that it's it's warrants an MRI, because obviously, as Andy's probably going to discuss in a moment, there are various kind of um, things that you have to do to prepare the horse for it and the limitations of the MRI as well. Yeah, exactly, Rick. And I think that's that's an important place to start. Probably is that um, the the MRI. Um, if you think of an MRI, it has we what we do is we we put something that's not dissimilar to uh, an overreach boot in terms of size. Um, uh, it's attached, got a lead coming out of it, and that attaches it to the machine. But it is only under that overreach boot that um, the uh, MRI will scan. Okay, and I, I, I'll, I'll just jump in. I think a, a lot of clients actually think when you think of an MRI, they always think of like ER or Holby City or something yeah. like on telly. Yeah. They see this great big donut. It's that's quite different, though, isn't it? In a referral centres, absolutely. And we so so the MRI that you you you're most commonly uh, using in in equine will be what's called a low field MRI. Um, it's got three sides to it. It looks like a little sort of three sided padded box. Um, and, and the horse obviously um, can put his foot uh, in that, uh, in the zone where we can scan. High field MRI, which most people are thinking about, is, is this more sort of tube-like arrangement uh, where you sit on the bed, similar to a CT really, uh, in that sense, uh, and you slide in and out of it and it's very, um, but this is not the same thing. It's obviously very similar, it's just less um, detail, um, but enables it to be done um, standing, which of course is much more beneficial for horses rather than having to anaesthetize them each time. High field MRIs is a possibility and we do have that capability at the uh, Royal Vet College, um, but we would rarely, if ever, use it for um, lower limb uh, lamenesses. 
So briefly on admission, your horse will, will be evaluated and then um, a catheter will be placed, um, which uh, has its own um, set of risks that you just have to be aware of. And then um, we will uh, have to remove the shoes because unfortunately the uh, magnetic part of MRI doesn't mix well with iron shoes. Um, so all shoes and all clenches have to be removed. And then the horse will have the MRI. Now to give you an idea of the time frame, most uh, foot MRIs will consist of 17 sequences on each foot. But each sequence takes around about two and a half minutes to acquire. And the horse must not move during that period. If it does, we have to restart that particular two and a half minute sequence. Why 17 sequences? Well, we need to align the scan along the angle of each individual structures and the structures change direction in the foot or they are in different directions. We take the deep digital flex and then it changes direction as it goes around the navicular bone um, and uh, the collateral ligaments, the coffin joint, all these sorts of things. And we have to do three different types of scan for each different um, structure um, and direction. So you can imagine how um, it, it mounts up to 17 quite easily and sometimes more. And so therefore, considering we have to do each foot, so if it's only left four lane, for example, we will also do the right four because we need to, to compare what is normal for your particular horse. So an MRI scan, usually we would say allow at least three hours for an MRI scan, and it generates a huge number of in images, more than CT, and it's actually a less intuitive modality to look through as well, so it takes longer. So that's why um, it's very uncommon we're going to be able to have the results available same day. We, we try and we may have some what we call headline news for the really easy to spot lesions but rather like CT we will always want to communicate that back to uh, your vet um, so uh, folk like Rick who will have referred the case in so we can chat about uh, the best way forward. I think what a lot of clients don't also appreciate is that uh, some referral centres included of your own the scans are also read by multiple people Mm. So if there is anything that's likely to be missed, that sometimes that can take time to get all those people in situ reading the same images and everything. Hence why, uh, unlike an instant x-ray or something like that, the MRI data does take a little bit longer to come through. Um, but again, it's it's to make sure everyone's being as thorough as possible and you're, you're getting the answers that you need. Absolutely. Just a little bit as well about the logistics as well of MRI, bearing in mind that um, we normally do the front foot they are heavily sedated to make sure they don't move. Um, and obviously when a horse is sedated, its front feet tend to stay stock still, planted. A hind foot, if you um, imagine your horse, will often, uh, he'll often rest a hind leg, especially when he's relaxed and sedated. And that is just a nightmare to deal with because, um, you know, if a horse gets into the habit of resting a leg, um, we, you know, it's very hard to make it stand on that leg for, you know, the best part of an hour and a half, which is what we need for each, each foot. So hind legs are much more difficult. Thankfully, um, someone's been kind to us in the sense that hind leg, <laughs> hind leg foot lameness is actually very uncommon. I, I have to admit, I could probably count them on at least one, if not two hands in, uh, exactly. in the time that I've been qualified, thankfully. <laughs> exactly. So that's, that's one good thing. But if we move up the limb and say we want to MRI the pastern or the fetlock, fetlock's about as high as we go. And the reason for that is sway. When the horse is sedated, it will sway a little bit enough just to make the images very, very distorted. And that's the last thing we want when we're spending the money on an MRI. We want the images to be top draw. And just down to cost, our cost is about 1,100 pounds. 
for an MRI scan, which um, is a pretty good use of funds, but it's not an insignificant amount of money, of course, especially if your horse isn't insured. So you have to weigh out the pros uh, and cons. And that's a discussion you'll first have uh, with, uh, with your vet. And Rick will have had many of those discussions um, in his career. Yeah, I, I think in MRI is invaluable uh, as a, a referral modality. Um, we're doing a lot more blocks in first opinion practice. Uh, we try to work them up as thoroughly as we can. But again, people, they they want answers. Clients want answers. They, they want to know the benefits of, of the diagnosis, uh, what kind of treatment modality is there. And for that to happen, you've got to be very specific with regards to your actual diagnosis. And I think just going down the route of x-ray and ultrasound sometimes isn't good enough and i think the money is sometimes better spent and then going down the mri route um and i think it's um it's certainly what is true to say is that sometimes unfortunately the news isn't good you know if you've got an mm. injury to a particular structures which you know have got really bad prognosis for for coming sound or or, or even so staying sound um bad news is never welcome um, but it's better to know what's going on than be completely in the dark. Mm. Um, and it may you know, modify your exercise program immediately mm. um, to, to prevent worsening of the injury um, and, and give it a better chance of success. So even though the news may not be good, it may not present an instant therapeutic um, avenue, at least we know what we're dealing with um, and can plan accordingly. Agreed. That's great. So that, that's MRI for us. That's uh, low field MRI. Um, um, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Rick. My pleasure, as always. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andy and Rick. Our vets will be back next week to talk about the role of veterinary hospitals in research. And we'll also be joined by dressage rider Steph Croxford in our guest interview slot. Don't forget that after today's interview with Piggy March, we've also had Piggy supergroom Amy Phillips as a guest on the podcast. If you'd like to go back and listen to that one, Amy was on episode 35. Thank you for listening to this week's Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by Frosty Tap. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.